0: Hey everyone before we start i wanted to let you know if you would like to watch our whole service head to our website that's dc2.me and from the media drop down click sermons you can watch our whole service there and now here's this week's sermon so i want you to imagine working on your computer if you have one and uh, pulling up one day, um, opening, opening it up, and, and all of a sudden a message pops up that says, you need to send 200,000 Bitcoin to this address. And you're like, what on earth? And you try and click out of it, and like, there's no box that has the X in it. Like You can't find that anywhere. And, and like, it gets to the point where you're like, picking up your laptop, looking underneath it. Like What am I supposed to do? It's not working. I have a friend, um, his name's Parker, and Parker works in Uh, cybersecurity. Parker's a trained hacker, and his whole job is what do you do when you experience ransomware? Um, He's got so many stories over the years. As we were talking this week about uh, my time with you this morning, he said, well, there's really kind of two main categories that it falls into. One, which you should not talk about, is the corporate side, or this is like the nation state hacking that (laughs) happens in that level of ransomware don't go there. It's like way too big of a pile of spaghetti to try and sort out. What you can talk about is your grandma's ransomware. This is this this story. This is what would happen to any one of us. And I learned a lot as, as we talked about how does this actually work? He was saying what happens is at some point, and this is usually months, if not years ahead of time, you have clicked on a button. You've downloaded something as innocuous as an Excel sheet. Again, it can happen in any form, and usually whatever that action is in the moment, it's not like it shuts down your computer right away. It just puts something in there. And then it will just sit for a long time. And the reason why it sits for a long time is because you actually technically, like you're not being held ransom yet. What's happening is that there's people out there who are not like, they're not necessarily like the baddest of the bad guys, they're just normal bad guys, and all that they've done is there's, there's people out there that their whole, their whole world is spent going, how can I get people to download something that gets me into their system? And as soon as they get that, they're not the ones who take the ball and go, okay, now, step two. At that point, their job is done, and this is their business. They will take whatever information that they have, their ability to get into your system, and they will sell that to the more bad bad guys, and sometimes it will move even further down a chain from there, but it's really interesting to me that the first layer of people, all they're trying to do is, is get you to click on the thing, and then from there, it can take a while for that information to move to then the people who are the more bad bad guys who will then say, okay, how do we, how do we extort money out of this person? We are gonna create a system in such a way that they will not be able to access their photos. Like, we, we will get in and shut the entire thing down. And the only way that they're gonna get the key to unlock this is if they pay us money. Oftentimes, Bitcoin's exchange, the trackability, the, like all the things I'm, of my pay grade. But that's, that's how this works. And if you're on the receiving end, it's pretty wild because even if you pay the ransom, it doesn't, like, it doesn't mean that they're gonna unlock your computer. Sometimes all that means is like, oh, we got you to pay that much? I mean, if you didn't put up a fight, or if you didn't wait too long, or maybe, like, there's so many factors that go into this, like, well, now you need to give us this many hundred thousand dollars more. And then, and then now more, like, you, and, and you just start to see, like, okay, this, this rabbit hole is opening up that I don't know if I'm ever gonna get out of this thing. Sometimes you pay the ransom, and, and you get this key that unlocks your computer. But when you have something like this happen with your computer, Parker was saying, you really have two options. You can either find someone else who can come in and fix it because chances are, especially if you're the one who clicked on the things, you probably should be trying to fix this problem. (laughs) So you can either have somebody else come in and fix it and they're gonna try and get for you the key that you need. They will will make it on their own if they can figure it out. And he goes, that's pretty uncommon. Or you have to pay the ransom. or you just throw your computer away. Like there's just not a lot else that you can do in this situation. It's super frustrating. Um, it's pretty uncommon that that you would be attacked from the outside. Like to not click on the thing or download the thing, that's a really uncommon way for somebody to get into your computer and hold it ransom. Nearly always you have done the action that has that has set up this situation. I thought that was really interesting. And as we're finishing this conversation, I you know, said, Parker, is there anything else that you think would be really helpful for us to know? He goes, oh yeah, I wanted to save my best thing for you till right at the end. He said, how did the, Parker, how did the hacker get away? I said, I was like, how? He said, he ran somewhere. <laughs> I was said, like, Parker, that's Parker's fault. I promised him I would include that this morning. Parker, you're welcome. I'm sorry. Ransomware is real in our world today, and and when we're talking about scripture, and we'll dive into our passage in just a second, that's a context where there were kind of two big things at play that we don't experience nearly as much in our context anymore. The first is it it was a culture that would travel by foot almost everywhere, oftentimes through pretty dangerous places, so to have a friend or a family member be kidnapped and then held ransom was not that uncommon. So this kind of ransoming language, like it was, it was a literal person that was being held ransom. Um, the other thing is that when we dig in, especially to the Old Testament, to this first chunk of the Bible, and we're trying to understand how's that addressing this idea of ransom or even slavery, it's so important to know most of the language, like a strong majority of the language, has less to do with a hostile takeover from another company Uh, company, country, or company, I don't know. And more to do with this idea of, you got yourself into a situation that was so dire that you had to sell yourself into slavery, and now the, the text, the Bible is addressing, can you and how can you get your way out of it? It's fascinating. Both are things being either being hijacked on the road or or selling yourself into indentured servitude slavery, things that we're not used to in our world today. What we are used to is ransomware. So keep all of those things swimming in your mind as we go through our text for today because this, this image is endemic. And if you've come in this morning, whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus, whether you're checking out the claims of Christ today, I think one thing I want you thinking about right out of the gate is do you ever get the sense that the world maybe is being held for ransomware? Like something's wrong. Like it feels like there are places in life where I open the screen and all that's waiting for me is something that says something's not right here. It's broken. For some of you that's looking at world news and you're just like, this is messed up. For some of you that's looking at something in a marriage or something in parenting or something in a local community, for all of us, there's places where in our internal life, in the way that we do business, whether in our mental health or in our addictions or in the things that we do, these places where we're opening up screens in our soul and we go, oh, it's not, it's not good. Something's locked up, something is not right and it's being held because I know the right thing is out there somewhere. My heart yearns for it. It feels far away, but, but I just, in my guts, I know. We're gonna find ourselves today tracking this idea all through uh, our, our series in this book of Matthew. Today we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 26. And we're gonna hit three different parts uh, on our journey through this, just the first part of the chapter today. The first one uh, is going to set the tone for everything else that we're gonna be hearing. And we're gonna start right out of the gate in Matthew chapter 26, verse 14. If you've been coming, um, know that so far, Jesus has been doing a lot of speaking. And he's gonna be speaking just a little bit more in this chapter, but the number of words that Jesus is gonna use now for the rest of the book of Matthew, he's going to become incredibly silent. Pay attention to that as we go. Chapter 26, verse 14, it says this. Then one of the 12, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I betray him, Jesus, to you? They paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. Okay, pretty straightforward, pretty messed up, um, but we we have something here that's hiding in plain sight to us. If you were a Jewish person, and this whole story is happening in a Jewish culture, Jewish people, the concept of 30 pieces of silver is a big deal. Because when you go back to the Old Testament and you look for like, where does that phrase, 30 pieces of silver, where does it show up? The consistent context that it shows up in is, this is the absolute minimum value placed on a human life. If something had happened to a slave, This was the bare minimum that you could pay to cover the wrong that had been done. When you were trading human life, if there was a slave trade that was happening, 30 pieces of silver, you cannot get any cheaper than that. That's, I mean, this is is as cheap as it gets. And so now, I want you to hear this same passage one more time because this little nugget of context really helps frame what just happened and it sets up our whole story for today. It says this, then one of the 12 who is called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and he said, what will you give me if I betray him to you? What's his life worth to you guys? They paid him 30 pieces of silver. So these chief priests, the ones who are supposedly the religious leaders at the time, this is a, a large statement towards what they think of this Jesus. We'll give you the bare minimum. We barely see him as a human being. His value, zero. And the other thing that I think is just heartbreaking as as we're reading this part, this is one of those like couple sentences that you can just read over really quickly and be like, okay, what happened next? And to pause here and go, no, understand. Judas, one of this rabbi's students who's been with him now for three years, He's already got in his mind to betray and when he goes and he's offered a price and the price is the least possible amount that he could have even expected, he takes this bag of money and he turns around and now he starts looking for a way to betray. Like, Can you feel like the gravity of this statement? If you're reading this and you know this about these 30 shekels of going, oh no. And I want you to see right out of the gate One thing that Matthew as a writer is doing is he goes, Jesus just became a slave. Do you understand that? His value, functionally what we're about to see in just a moment, there's a huge shift that Judas just set up for us, and if you can hold on to that, so much more of the story is going to make sense to you. And we'll continue reading in our passage. We're gonna start now in verse 26. And this is a story that we love here at Discovery. This is the story of the Last Supper. And there's a lot that's gonna be going on here. So we're gonna hit it, but then we're gonna go back and explain a couple more things that are going on. It says this, verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this blood is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, that historical context of what's going on in the story is so important. There's like, it's, this is so much fun because you can read what's going on. You go, okay, cool story. And then when you look at the backdrop that's happening behind the play, so many more things start to make so much more sense because this meal isn't just like, hey, it's Tuesday. You guys want to come over for tacos? This is Passover, And the Passover meal is a very formal meal. If you got to be here this last spring, we got to have a Passover Seder here at Discovery. And it's amazing when you understand the poetry and the depth and the meaning and the intentionality that goes into this meal. And one of the most important things about this meal, and it starts out right at the beginning, when you set the table, there's certain things that go in certain places. The most prominent thing on the table is four glasses. And over the course of the night, you're gonna drink four different glasses of wine, and each one of those glasses uh, is to re- help you remind you of something different. And it all points back to the story of when God freed the, the people, the nation of Israel, from slavery in Egypt. All the way back, this is in the times of Moses, Prince of Egypt, if you've seen the movie. like th- This is referencing back to that time. And in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, verse, chapter six, verse six, it's, it has this statement. God says, Say therefore to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from the burdens of the Egyptians. So as they're planning this Passover and as they're setting up this whole idea of like, what are we gonna do this night? There's these four cups and these four cups, you just saw them show up in this passage. Let me point them out for you. The first one, the first cup is the cup of freedom. God has come to free us, pause, grab a glass of wine, a toast of freedom, and you drink. Oh, so cool. Meal goes on a little bit more, and the second cup, I will deliver you from slavery. All of these are based on these I will statements that God has here. I will deliver you from slavery, pause. Grab a cup, a toast that we're no longer slaves. And you drink, and you savor. You get to this third cup. I will redeem you. We're gonna talk about this idea of redeeming, but you grab a cup, a toast to the fact that we're redeemed. Redeem kind of feels like, a, it's either a financial word or it's a spiritual word in our culture today. Like, what's he getting at here? We're gonna talk about that. And then this fourth cup, I will take you as my people. A toast to the fact that we're God's people now. This is a Passover meal. It's, it's so, so cool. One really interesting thing as we're reading how Matthew is writing this particular chunk in Matthew 26 is he does say, when they had sung the hymn, Well, so Jesus has all these things he says, and then in verse 30, when they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. When you're doing a Passover Seder, you drink the third cup, then you sing a hymn, and then you drink the fourth cup after the hymn. So Matthew's leaving a little bit of a breadcrumb trail here of going, what was the cup that Jesus held up that he said, this is the blood of my covenant? If this is a Passover Seder, Matthew has built a bunch of neon signs saying it's, it's cup number three, which is the cup of redemption. The cup that reminds us, I will redeem you. But God is saying, I am going to redeem you. That's fascinating. So, what is this idea of being redeemed? In Exodus 6, if you're gonna take a look at that phrase and go, what, what's he getting at? And you look at the Hebrew word that is there. It's this idea of a kinsman redeemer. And the basic idea, you don't need to remember that phrase. All you need to remember is this storyline of it's more common in scripture, especially in the Old Testament, that when they talk about slavery, they're gonna talk way less about we were taken over by another nation and taken off. And especially in the law, where where we're finding this passage, it's way more of this idea of I've worked myself into a deep, dark hole. I had to sell myself into slavery the only way that you can get yourself out of that situation is if you have a family member who comes in and says, I'll pony up the difference. To reframe this whole thing, it's this idea of, there's now a ransom that's been placed on your life. If you've had to sell yourself into slavery, there's actually a dollar amount that now exists on your head. If there's a family member that's gonna come in and save you from becoming a slave, a family member has to be the one that comes in and says, I'll pay the cost. I will pay the ransom so that you can be free again. Which then, as we're reading this story in Exodus 6, it just, it makes so much sense that God, when, when you look at the story of what has landed Israel in slavery in Egypt, they sold themselves into slavery. Like they made the decisions that put them there. And so God is coming in in this passage we just read and said, look, I'll pay the cost to get you out. This third cup that you're toasting to is a toast that says, God will pay the cost for us. We sold ourselves into this slavery. We got ourselves into this mess. He's the only one that could have gotten us out of it, a toast to that. Okay, loosen up, y'all, because now it's gonna start to get real fun as we're looking at what's Jesus doing here. We go to this Passover meal He's sitting with his friends. At one point in this Passover, he breaks a piece of bread and he gives it out and he says, every time you eat this, remember, it's my body broken for you. And then he holds up this cup. He says, this cup, this cup that's to remind us that God paid the price to get us out of slavery. This cup is my blood. My blood is the cost. My blood is the dollar that's been put on your head to buy you out of the slavery that you sold yourself into every time you drink this. Remember. Whew. This is an amazing story. So, what are you worth? I think we have to play back the tape and go, well, what do we know to be true from what the Bible says? Well, it, it's, there's a couple base truths. You were made good. I think this word can get messed up a little bit, but I think for lack of a better term, like there's a, perf- a perfect self that you were always intended to be. Therefore, if that is who you were intended to be and that has been lost, what is the cost to buy that perfect self back? The cost has to be another perfect self. That's what was lost, therefore that will be the price tag to bring it back. And if that's true, if your perfect self, if this redeemed state, this free person, if that's what's been lost, therefore, you need a perfect self to buy you back. Therefore, your worth is a perfect person. And now, begin to see the paradox of what's going on in this story. Judas comes to these chief priests and goes, hey, this Jesus, what's he worth to you? And they go, man, not much. That's the value that's being put on Jesus' life. But in reality, we know that what's happening in that moment is God is looking at every single one of us and he's going, what's the cost of your life? What is your value and your worth to me? It's worth my son. You are worth a perfect life. You are worth the ransom that I'm about to pay for you. I don't know if you struggle like I do sometimes with self-value. I've wondered a lot in life groups. This is, I think, two of your questions this week get at this idea. What would it look like to be the type of person that walks around just knowing how valuable you really are? How would that change the way that you function? How would that change the way you treat yourself? And I think especially, how would that change the way that you treat other people? You are so valuable. And we know this because we know the cost of what it took to buy you back out of the slavery you sold yourself into. Wow. So, Israel, they get themselves into this mess of slavery. God promises to be the one to pay the cost to bring them back. For us, we get ourselves into this mess of slavery. But God says, I'll come and I'll pay the cost. We're gonna hit this a little bit more towards the end, but I think this idea can be pretty abstract of like, well, how have I sold myself into slavery? What have I done? And I would say, look in the mirror and tell me everything imperfect. Not just looking at your exterior, but as you really gaze into your soul, what's messed up? That's where you've sold yourself into slavery. That's where you have been sold into slavery. One of our monikers here at Discovery is no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, You're welcome here. But there is an indictment in that statement. There are things that we all have done. There are things that all of us have done to others, and that others have done to us. That's crucial to understand. And so as you're looking at yourself in the mirror, be like, where where are things messed up? Not just the things I've done intentionally, but the things that have been done, done to me begin to see here is where my slavery lives. Here are the things that prevent me from being the perfect person, the best version of myself that I was always intended to be. And now our story is gonna continue. And we're gonna wrap up with this text, this final story that Matthew wants us to see. This is called the Garden of Gethsemane. Often you may have heard this story before, but if you haven't, this is such a treat. And it's brutal to see. It says this, Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane. This is on the Mount of Olives, which we've been talking about the last few weeks, is across a valley where he'd be able to turn around and see the entire city of Jerusalem, particularly the temple. That's where he's sitting and praying. He said to his disciples, his students, sit here while I go over there and pray. You gotta remember, these guys have been partying all day. It's Passover, they've got at least four glasses of wine in them, okay? Sit here and pray, which is like, whew, okay, Jesus, I'm a little full. Um, okay, he took, him, he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Okay, so see right away, there's two things going on. He turns to all of his students, all, all 12. We assume that Judas is either here or he's freshly left. He's freshly left to the 11, sit down, pray. And he says, hey Peter, and James and John, you guys come here. And he began to be grieved and agitated. Then he said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And so he goes, then now one step further away, just from the three. Going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, my father, If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. I think this is one of those things where it's really easy to read quickly over that and be like, oh, metaphor, let this cup pass. Like he's talking about a cup, great. What cup is it that he's talking about? And you know now, this cup of redemption, this cost, like, If there's any other way, God, if there's any other way to pay this ransom, this cost, any other way, let's do that. But not what I want, what you want. Then he came to his disciples, and he found them sleeping. Makes sense, four glasses of wine, long day, busy week. And he said to Peter, could you not stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray that you may not come into this time of trial. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. One really interesting thing about when you celebrate Passover is usually when the meal's done, you would stay up all night. I mean, oftentimes you would wait for the sun to rise. And what you would spend that time doing, specifically, it wasn't just like hang out, pull up a chair. Specifically, you were supposed to tell stories of God's redeeming works in your life and in the story of your family. So when Jesus is talking here, yes, he's throwing himself on the ground, he's praying, he is deeply grieved. We have a friend in need here. Just out of custom, these students of his would know we're supposed to pro- like we should build a fire and all sit around it. We should just remind ourselves of how all the different ways that we've seen God buy us back from slavery over and over and over and they're sleeping. Ah. Like just one further twist of the knife. Again, he went away for a second time, and he prayed, my father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. And again he came, and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, this is the third time, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And just, just to remind you of what those words are. Let this cup pass from me, but not my will but yours be done. He came to the disciples again and said, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And at this part of the story, we're going to pause as we see pitchforks and torches coming over the crest of the hill towards where Jesus is. We're gonna pick that up next week. But there is so much that we've just uncovered in these stories that I wanted to point out. The first is this. I think as we've been reading the book of Matthew, there's so many amazing things that Matthew's doing as a writer that Jesus has done in his life. I mean, everything from his birth to these teachings, Jesus is a fantastic teacher. Right out of the gate, we've seen him walking around and he's touching people and he's healing them. At what point he starts saying, your sins are forgiven, like the the propheticness of this guy, an incredible leader, all these things. And we've been watching on the side of our stage for this last week for this image to come into play And, and I want you to see as we hit Matthew 26, for the first time we're starting to see the fullness of Jesus for the first time in this story. When you look at his face, I want you to know that what Matthew wants you to see is yes, he's a great teacher. Yes, fantastic healer. Prophecy, prophetic gifts, and ability to teach into deep places coming out of his nose. But if you wanna see him, if you wanna really know what he's about, you gotta understand that the best picture that you can be given is a dude who's saying this third cup the price that it cost to buy you back from slavery. This is who I am. This is what the mission is for. He came for you. He is this kinsman redeemer. He's the cost. He became a slave. It's so interesting, right? The story began with Judas selling him into slavery, the cost of a slave. And now with everything that we know, it makes total sense what Matthew's doing. We had sold ourselves into slavery. And Jesus comes in and he says, okay, I'm gonna switch places with you. I'm gonna pay the cost for what has happened here. So if if I'm gonna buy you out of slavery, I will become a slave myself. I will become everything that's got you stuck where you are. I'm gonna take all of that off of you and I'm gonna put it on. And I will now step into your place. And in that moment, there's one other thing that we can begin seeing in this face of Jesus that's coming into crystal focus. Who was he? Over and over, Matthew has reminded us, this is the son of God. This is a child of God. This is a perfect person. This is who you were always supposed to be like. And so when Jesus says, I'm gonna trade places with you, I'm gonna come over here, I'm gonna put on the slavery that you've chosen, that frees us up to this choice to go, we can now become the children of God we were always supposed to be. It's grand, and it's pretty unbelievable. No matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, you have a family member who's chosen to pay the price not only for your freedom, but for the ability for you to become a part of the family again. Love that the tiles that make up Jesus' face, I love that they include our brokenness. When you look at from the back of the room, you can't see them, but if you haven't yet, when the service is done today, um, come and just take a quick look. Most of these tiles include words that, that came from us in this room. What's it like having life without Jesus? These are places of our brokenness. We've written our slavery on his face. And it is only when those things find their fullness and completion in him that we are set free and that it all starts to make sense yet again. They used to have no shape. Now in him, they have meaning. They have shape again. They are restored back. In him, your story can make sense. In him, the things that you see when you see your slavery in the mirror start to tell a different story. You're a child and you're loved, and your dad came, and he saw the position that you had put yourself in, and he paid to have you back. Jesus is given the value of 30 pieces of silver, and you're given the value of being called a child of God himself. Good news. I'm gonna bring out the band. But I think this does remind us of some significant questions that should stick out of these passages for us. How have you been sold into slavery? The Old Testament most consistently talks about this of when you've dug a hole, you've had, like this is your only option left. What has happened? What have you done? What's been done to you? It's time to confess that. It's time to call it out for what it is. What is it for you? Maybe there's lies or unfaithfulness, or addiction, or abuse? What about your selfishness? Or maybe it is some of these more subtle things. What about your self-hate? What about your quiet judgmentalism? Your busyness that makes you walk away from all things that are good? What about your greed? What about your despair when you look at how messed up the world is and you find yourself screaming, well, come, somebody come and fix it. Let Jesus pay the ransom to get you out from under that master. And then, what does a child of God do? There's a phrase here that, that's just wild to me. Jesus is in this garden. He prays this same prayer three times every time. God, if there's any other way, let it be so. But not my will, but yours. These are the words of a child of God. It's ironic to me that it would be the voice of a slave that says, I want to do what I want. That's a statement of slavery according to Jesus. A statement of freedom and of liberation and of your child-likeness of him is the sweet and simple prayer. What do you want? Whatever you want, that's what we'll do. Even if it doesn't make sense, even if it involves suffering, yes. That's the sound of a child. So, it may not lead to an easier life, it may not lead to more fun, but it will be beautiful, and it will be good, right up until the moment of your death, and then as we'll see in these next few weeks, well beyond that, into eternity itself. So when I mess up, and when I sell myself into slavery again, when I choose to trust and obey another voice, whether mine or any other, it's at that point that my kinsmen up the screens and go it's being held ransom something's not right is there any way to fix it the hope and the beauty and the truth and the goodness where is it and why does my heart yearn yearn for it so deeply when it seems so distant Jesus is saying I'm buying it all back and I'm buying you back so come learn how I do it and join me I'm paying the ransom. I'm thrilled that we in this church and that church tradition, it just includes singing. You may be in a place where you go, I just need to sit for a minute and think. I need to like really let some things settle in. You may be in a place where you're like, I need to sing from the top of my lungs that if this story is true, I have faith and hope in something again regardless of how you want to respond, this time is yours. And I would just say, how can you offer whatever it is that you do with a heart that says, this is not about me and what I want right now. This is about you.